Only three things in life are certain. Death, taxes, and the DePaul women's basketball team thriving on the court. The Blue Demons enjoyed yet another successful season in 2018-19. In addition to posting a sterling 26-8 record, 14-4 in Big East play, DePaul won its fourth Big East tournament championship in six years, making the NCAA tournament for the 17th straight season. Although their season ended with the loss in the round of 64, the trend of dominance looks like it will continue in 2019-20 and beyond. I'm Tim Stebbins, and this is the Radio DePaul Sports Podcasts. I'm sitting with Matt Mellemsetter and Abbas Taheldwala of Radio DePaul Sports, two of our main basketball analysts for the station. Matt, Abbas, you guys were on the call for a plethora of games this season, and for each of you, I'm going to start with Matt. What were your expectations for the women's basketball team entering the 2018-19 season? Um, you know, I, I think baseline was make the NCAA tournament. I think Abbas, before we started recording, you mentioned that they were ranked number 15 to start the season, preseason. Um, but, you know, I think for the DePaul women, kind of conference championship is the goal every single year. And so that's that's the least that I expected from this team. Abbas, what were your expectations? Going off of that, the 15 ranking was uh, surprising, I guess, uh, because they, had, they, they lost Amara Coleman from last year. And, you know, they added a couple freshmen, but we didn't really think they were going to really be playing much this year. So... I was surprised to see that 14th ranking, but it gave me a lot of hope for the season, and I really I was expecting big things out of this team. And big things obviously did come for the team. They enjoyed success in the Big East Conference tournament. However, they lost in the first round, the round of 64 of the women's NCAA tournament. Abbas, you obviously watched this game. What went wrong for DePaul in that loss to Missouri State? Well, I, I look, a, a lot of it was um, the rebounding because DePaul as a team this year, while the shooting had failed them a lot this year, they would one game they'd shoot over 40, next game they'd be under 30. So the shooting completely died in that game. They shot 10 of 35, 28.6% from the three-point line. So that was one thing. And then the other thing that has helped them win a lot this year has been getting offensive rebounds and completely destroying the other team in the rebounding margin and the offensive rebounding margin. This women's team is very good at converting offensive rebounds and making second-chance points. They had 11. Missouri State had 11. Overall rebounding, Missouri State won 42-31. So two things that already went against DePaul, and those were the two things that really helped them win every game this year. On the other end, Missouri State, not a great three-point shooting team. They're 33% on the year. They shot 55%. So, so much went wrong for DePaul, and the matchup itself was already tough, playing against a Missouri State team that relies on their height so much more than any other Big East team that DePaul had played this year. So, once again, another thing that was just a complete disadvantage for DePaul. Just a multitude of factors came crashing down, unfortunately, for DePaul in this game. With all that being said, for both of you, we'll start with Matt. What are your feelings about this team, how they did this season, now that it's over, with that loss included, Matt? Um, you know, I guess I did never consider this team a national championship contender. Um, and so, going back to kind of my preseason expectations, all I was really looking for was to hang another banner in McGrath-Phillips Arena, to hang another ch- conference championship banner in McGrath-Phillips Arena, and this team achieved this. I... You know, the loss in the round of 64 is disappointing, um, but overall, I think this season is a success because anytime you can win a conference championship, it's really special. And boss, for you, what, what are your thoughts about the season in total now? 
Well, uh, you know, I, I thought maybe they could have gotten a little bit further. This was a kind of a an end of an era kind of year for DePaul because, uh, you know, we're going to see Rebecca Dahlman leaving, Marte Gray's Ashton Milliner both leaving, and Tanita Allen, who's been at DePaul for her entire career. So those are four major losses for DePaul, but they had a lot of young players coming. So I thought maybe it was a year that, that depth could have come together and it could have been something big. They're a deeper team than they were last year and they didn't get as far. So I'm a little disappointed at how the season ended. Be that as it may, a lot went right for this team this year, such as Shante Stonewall hitting a game-winning shot against Marquette in the Big East Tournament Championship game. Let's look back on that moment. And Lexi Halves is going to pass it in. Campbell and Stonewall at the three-point line, Gray's down low, and Millinder all the way in the right corner. Held, gets it into Campbell. Campbell guarded by Blockton. Campbell to Stonewall. Stonewall driving to the rim, goes up, gets it to fall, and one. That was a boss on the call during Shante Stonewall's game-winning shot. On April 30th, a boss, Matt, and myself had the opportunity to sit down with head coach Doug Bruno. In that hour-long sit-down, Coach Bruno discussed the team's goals and expectations entering the season, the adjustments they made as it wore on, his feelings on labels, and what the team will look like come next season. We'll have that after this short break. Mextrus curling right side, drills the jumper. See what Struce does. He looks like he wants to shoot. I was kind of hoping he would pull up there and one. Floater was wet. Struce is loose. Curl three. three. Bang. You know it. My goodness. Struce on the other end gets it to fall and one. Now up top, he's got a double team. Now it's just Figueroa on him. Nice oh, move. Quick wow. move. Out of oh, control. Oh my goodness. Wow, he was out of control. Max he finished off glass. That is a new career high for Max Struess. He had 34 earlier this year. He's got 35 now. You're listening to Radio DePaul Sports, the student voice of your DePaul Blue Demons. Just revisiting that base uh, championship game, the final game. Uh, you know, Stonewall obviously hit that just incredible shot. What did what was like your your mindset going into that play? I guess what did you want out of that play? Was well, that exactly what? Well, it was, was almost exactly what we wanted. Okay. We we wanted to isolate Shante on the pinch post. She was having a pretty productive offensive game. I I I, I wasn't exactly hoping that Lot would guard. Lot's their best defensive player, and you know we had actually talked to Shante in the huddle and said Shante, we're gonna you know we got a name for it, but we're gonna we're gonna isolate you on the pinch. Which one you want, the left or right? She said. At first, she said left, and then she said, "No, coach, I want the right pinch, right pinch post, pinch post is elbow." All right, and she actually stepped out, so it wasn't exactly on the elbow. So she was a little bit more extended, elbow extended, but we wanted to iso her, and we wanted her to go one on one. So we got exactly what we wanted, but just still the player stuff to make the play. Just because you call it, doesn't mean she has to make the play. 
and she made a strong play against their best defensive player, you still have to have the referee have the guts to make the call because they don't like to make the call at that time. You know, that, and it was a right call. She was fouled. I mean, there was contact all over that play. So is it, you know, if it wasn't, it wasn't a charge. So, I mean, she made the right call. But Shantae still had to take her off the bounce. Shantae still had to make the shot while being hit. Shantae had to go to the free throw line. That's something I hate doing. I don't do. I refuse to talk to a free throw shooter about what's next when they're on the line. Because it just, it just really screws them up. So I know the amount of time that was left. I grabbed the other four players and knew that five seconds is plenty of time for Heidemann. Heidemann is a, is a dagger coming down that court with five seconds. I mean, she daggered us in 17, you know, from 65, 75 feet, you know, at the end of a quarter. Or, you know, so, you know, I know Heidemann's got to come down the floor. She's going to get the ball in her hands and she's going to go one-on-one length of the court. I know Shantae's her matchup. I know Shantae's got to get to her fast, but I got the conundrum, dilemma, whatever you want to call it, I ain't saying nothing, because she got to make the free throw. So, so I don't say nothing to her. So as important as making that free throw was, making the play was, she still had to have the mental acuity. I mean, just when you watch you know, Pop's guys the other day, and there's not a better coach in the world than Pop, but you watch a guy not foul down four the other day, and you know, they're gonna make the excuse that he couldn't hear you, come on. I mean, Shantae had to have the understanding of, I gotta get to that player and, and, and guard that player cleanly. You know, you can't foul her. <laughs> you gotta guard her cleanly the length of the court and not let her get a, a good shot off that was really, it wasn't just, I mean, believe me, she, we did, she did run what we called, she, she made the strong play, she got the free throw, she made the free throw, and she defended Heidemann. I mean, and, and you know what? You go back and look at that, the other four guys that were just standing there waiting, they didn't do their job. I mean, because I mean, if you look at that, this is basketball, the four guys that were waiting, that should have been matched up, I mean, lots open in the corner if Heidemann would have thrown it to her. She shouldn't have been, but she was. Wilburn was under the basket if she would have thrown it to her. And, and, and I, I think we probably could have gotten to that ball, but still, that pass. But still, you know, the four that were watching her shoot the free throw weren't exactly where they were supposed to be. And, and so, but I, I mean, Heidemann has won games. She's had so many buzzer beaters, so I can't really... If I'm Marquette's coach, I, I'm not sure I'm going to get on her about the shot she took under duress. But had she just pushed the ball a lot, a lot had a ball in the air to, to win that basketball game from the left corner because she was open, more open than she should have been. So, you know, it, it, it worked out. We're excited. You do this long enough, there's a lot of games that didn't work out. So that's, Entering the season this year, what were your goals as a, as a team for, for the 2018-19 season? I always let the team come together and, 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 and decide what their goals are going to be. So, I mean, I think our team had some really great goals, and they really, and I'm speaking for them right now, they wanted to make history. They wanted to be the first DePaul team to go to an Elite Eight. They wanted to be a DePaul team, the first DePaul team to win 30 basketball games. I don't really like our players to put numbers on 
because even the numbers can be restrictive, even though 30 is something. We've achieved a lot here at DePaul, but we've never won 30. But why should 30 be the end-all, be-all? If you're going to get 30, why not get 36? I, I mean, I mean, so I, I don't necessarily agree when they put numerical numbers on things, but it's their team. I want it to be their team. So I let them select and come together as a group and spend time. These goals aren't just something that we just flip out one day. You know, I, I really ask them to spend time and, and work with them on spending time. And I think those were all really achievable goals. And we're sharing this, I mean, we're, by, by answering that question, we're bearing our soul here, and I'm happy to. And at the same time, you know, it's not easy to make the NCAA tournament. And, and you know, they wanted to make the tournament. You have to make the tournament. Just because you made it 17 straight years doesn't mean you're guaranteed to make it next year. Just because you had made it 16 straight years, there's no guarantees you're going to make the tournament this year. So these were goals, and I, I think they wanted to win the Big East regular season championship. We wanted to win the Big East tournament. This is, we wanted to have two home games in the NCAA tournament. And once these goals are set, you still have to then, it's the commitment to the goals. It's the process. The goals are the, are the destination but you still have to figure out how you're going to get there. And, you know, that, that I don't look at this as a team that, that didn't achieve their goals. When you coach for a living and lead teams and help teams lead themselves, you have to be in a constant state of adjusting goals. So I really then look at the place to which we dug a quick hole. The Syracuse game cost us dearly early on. I think that's a game that really could have been a, a season changer for us. And it was a tough ball game to lose. It was early in the season. It was a Thanksgiving tournament in Cancun. And we beat a really good Princeton team. We beat, beat a NCAA tournament. Those are both NCAA tournament teams, Princeton and, and, um, and Kansas State. And then we had Syracuse beat and let them off the hook in regulation. We had them beat in overtime and let them off the hook, even though they had us down 15 points. So it, it's. Matt, you asked a simple one question. I'm still, I'm not, I don't consider myself rambling on. I, I'm trying to help explain. So the Syracuse game is a game that got away from us early. And, and then the Creighton opener here is a game that got away from us that I believe we should have been able to win on our home court. And then the Seton Hall game. So those are three games that are really the difference between these high expectations and still having a year that many programs around the country would die to have. I mean, to, it's still not easy to win 25 games. It's not easy to win 26 games. It's not easy to win 27 games. It's, it's not easy to win this many games. So for this team then, I, I mean, I think their greatest achievement was setting these high goals, falling short, being in midseason, and now what do you do? Do you get up off the mat and fight back? Or do you just say, oh, well, it's over. We didn't get it done. And have a pity party for yourself and, and turn the page to next year. And that's why I'm most proud of this group is that to win 11 in a row and 16 out of 18 down the stretch, 
what the team did is really they had to re, you, know, you have to recalculating, recalculating, you know, all right, we had to recalculate in the middle of the season and make some decisions. And I'm talking about the players. And I thought they did a great job of digging themselves, you know, picking themselves up off the mat and, and really fighting back. I thought the Marquette game here, we really could have won that one after tying it at 83 down the stretch. So I think there's three or four that we left on the table that are the, the little difference between 26 wins and 30 wins. They also probably cost us two home games in our tournament, which is our women's tournament is so different than the men's tournament because you really want to be a top four seed in one of these regionals. You want to be a top 16 seed. Our RPI was 18, so we just missed that, and that would have given us two home games. Um, and I'm not even sure if they would have been here at you know, McGrath Phillips Wind Trust. And, and um, I'm just really proud of the way they came back and put us in position to win the Big East tournament. And we you know, didn't, the, 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 the Creighton, the Creighton Seton Hall games really is what cost us the, the regular season championship. I think we finished a game off, or a game behind or two games behind Marquette. And so it was really, really right there, but we, boy, those players really had some tough, no room for error, pressure games in those 11 one in a row wins 11 times that I'm just really proud of them. So a lot of words, a lot of answers to one question. So, and then obviously we didn't play well in the tournament. I mean, when people ask me what kind of year you had, I respond to them was that, you know, we had, we, you know, we had a really good regular season because we did have a really good regular season, but we didn't play well in the tournament, and that's disconcerting because when you're on a run of 11 in a row and 16 out of 18, there's an expectation you're going to play a better ball game, and I still don't understand what happened. Missouri State's a much better team than they, their seed maybe, but still, it's a good team we lost to, but still, I, I, I'm fine. I can handle losing if we play well. We just didn't play well, and I, that, that's tough. You mentioned uh, in the season, you, know, you guys made some decisions, you had some adjustments to make. What specifically, like, what kind of adjustments were made? Well, I, I mean, there's two levels here. I mean, there's, there's coaching adjustments that had to be made. We, you know, we were still looking for that fifth starter. You know, Sonia Moore started for six games, and then Becca Dahlman started for 14 games, and then we went with Maya Stovall down the stretch. So, I mean, I think from a coaching perspective, we were trying to figure it all out still well into the season. Uh, but from a player you know, the adjustments they made were just basic decisions to pay attention to details and to understand how these little things, these little details within the game of basketball affect outcome. And that's all I, I just think. And when I say every game is a life of its own and every season has a life of its own, that is not cliche. It's truth from the inside out of a basketball program. From the outside in, it might become or appear to be cliche, but from the inside out, it's what you do. And if you want the results of a victory, you have to pay attention to details. And I don't think we did a great job of paying attention to details early on. It's details that cost us. I mean, every one of these three games we left on the table, I mean, I think we could have won those games with a little bit, a, a detail here and a detail there that was attended to. We beat Syracuse, we beat Creighton, we beat Seton Hall and, and that Marquette game at 83, you know, it's 83, 83, I think with a minute and a half or two minutes to go in the game and they made a couple plays we didn't. So that's 
quickly where it all kind of shook itself up. But the, the adjustment of paying attention to details collectively, individually and collectively, was what the players did. And you know, we, as coaches, had to figure some play things out from a player point of view and from a, an approach point of view. But still, we didn't exactly change everything we were doing either. So in terms of uh, the Marquette games you mentioned, the first one was first, little... It was blown. So I mean, they just they just killed us. I mean, okay, and that's that's. I don't even look at that as one of the ones we. I mean, Notre Dame, we played very close here until about four to go, and then they they spread it out. UConn drilled us, and Marquette drilled us. Okay, that that, that happens. So I don't even count those 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 games. You know, sometimes it's going to happen. It's dis, disconcerting to me that we would lose to Marquette like we did after we had just beaten them in the tournament a year ago by 35 or 6 or whatever it was and then turn around and get beat by 35 or 36. But that happened. It's the Marquette game here, you know, where we're, you know, we're just a month later where we got back in that Super Bowl Sunday, I think it was, February 3rd. I think we played up there January 4th. We played back here February 3rd. And, um, you know, that game, we were chasing pretty good in that game. I mean, we had a terrible first half. We were down, I think, um, 12, might have had only 26 points or 28 points at half, 27, might have been 39-27 at halftime. And then the second half of that Marquette game is when I felt like our team started to play ball. And, and we came back from a 12-point deficit and put ourselves in position to win and just didn't finish that game. But it was the first sign of seeing us start to play like we can play. And, that, and that's really, I mean, that, that Marquette game and I guess the Seton Hall game, a couple games before that, we got beat by Seton Hall, and we went and beat Butler and Xavier, and then lost to Marquette. So that's the 16 out of 18 stretch. The the, the, the the Seton Hall game and the Marquette game were the two losses in the 16 out of 18 with then 11 in a row. That's not easy to do in a league like ours. So that's where it just kind of started coming back. With uh, the third game then the biggest tournament, how did you guys, you know, flip the switch, flip the script, and, you know, had those two losses to Marquette, and then well, all of a sudden... I, I, think, I think the game in, in, in Wintrust was very similar to the game here. I, I just think that our team grew, and I, I just, you know, we're more ready to make plays down the stretch. I mean, if you, if, if you look back at the season again, and again, I started this conversation by talking about the lofty goals at the beginning and then the need to reconfigure by Christmas time. And and so now, you know, where we've reconfigured things, but I mean, the number of times this team came from behind. You know, we're chasing 16, 18 points at at at, at Georgetown and and win the game. We're at Villanova on the road and we're we don't lead in the game. We we let a little bit early, but I mean, basically, the second half we're down the whole second half until the last minute, put in overtime, win in overtime. But I mean, at Butler we're down 16, 17. We're down a lot of points, and we're down 12 with six to go, and end up winning by eight. You know, that's a 20 point swing in six minutes. So these players really did a great job. You know, at Xavier we're down four or five points. And put you know with a minute and thirty to go and put it in overtime and win in overtime. So, I, I just think the growth at making plays at crunch time started to happen, and even you know that Butler and Xavier thing happened, and we still came back and didn't make plays against Marquette, but it was a growth process. And then those eleven in a row, we still came from behind in 
a number of those games and had to make plays down the stretch. And I, I think those 11 games making plays down the stretch helped our team have the confidence to, and, and basically the whole season of coming behind, they weren't in a panic. We, as a players, weren't in a panic state when Marquette had us down 13. I think they had us down 13 in the second half, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, you know, maybe they had us down 16 in the game, but 13 in the second half. And, um, you know, it was, it was, they weren't in a panic. We knew we could, could come back, and then making a plays down the stretch was a pleasure to watch. You know, this year, four outgoing seniors, Marte Grace, Rebecca Dahlman, Tina Allen, Ashton Nolinger, uh, Ashton Nolinger, that's a lot of production leaving, and you know that's. I think it's safe to say the team staying focused, staying together. That's they're a big part of that. What do they mean to the program beyond just you know the box score? What do they mean for the team on and off the court? Well, I, I mean, I think we should start with our fifth-year seniors, and and Marte and Ashton, because both of those players were injured in the 2017 season, and you know to to. to that season became special because we played without two starters and then just January went down for the Big East season. So you're, you're without three starters and the preseason player of the year. So for what they did, in the, for what that team did was awesome, but then for Marte to come back from a, a, a very serious Achilles injury, uh, you know, that's not easy to do. And it takes a lot of you know, hard work in the rehab training room and, and the weight room, and it's not easy. And she came back from that and was willing to give to Paul her fifth year. And so that that in and of itself, and, and then Ashton Millinder, you know, not being able to play in that 17th season, she played eight or nine games early and then her, her feet just wouldn't work. And, and for her to come back, I mean, their willingness to come back in that fifth year and stay loyal to us here at DePaul and really, you know, just, be such great teammates and great competitors and want to be part of this. I, I'm just, I'm just, that's what's so special about those two. Obviously, their talent. Marte is a really talented player. He's an all Big East player for a reason. And Ashton's a great three-point shooter, one of the best three-point shooters ever to play here at DePaul. But Ashton was more than that. They were both also consummate competitors. So we're going to miss them very, very much. You know, Tanita Allen is a really special person to me. I love Tanita, and she just always had the injury situation where she never was able to get traction here at DePaul. And yet, you know, she still had some magnificent games for us, came up big for us often, and, you know, I just wish she had been able to be more injury-free during her life here because here's a player that just missed scoring a 1,000 points with all the injuries. I mean, just to think what she could have done here had she been healthy. So we're going to, we, you know, just like the other two, played through injuries, so did Tanita. She was constantly playing through injuries. And this season, you know, this season she was I always banked up. Something was never, I mean, her body just didn't really, I mean, she had a tough year physically, but she still gave us, you know, we're still going to miss what she gave us. She gave us rotation minutes. She gave us the ability to score. And so we're going to miss Tanita very much as well. And Becca, you know, I'm, I'm saving Becca for last because she did transfer. She was a fifth-year graduate transfer that we really brought in to play for us the season that she got hurt. So, I mean, the program was set up for her to have a great year the year before, and then she breaks her hand in the third quarter of the first game, and, and or the fourth quarter, I guess it was early in the fourth quarter of the first game, and can't play. So for her to come back for her sixth and, 
you know, both Tanita and, and Becca are co-six players a year on this team, and, and those awards are going to be given out tonight at the banquet. So, I mean, they, they both came off the bench, even though Becca did start those 14 games. They were really key players coming off the bench and, and you know, really capable and, and excellent players. So we're going to miss all four of them a, a, a lot. We always do, but that's part of college coaching, college programming. You know, you, it turns over fast. So there's no, there's no replacing that, obviously, but with Lexi Halib, I still have all Sonny Morris, what kind of leaps are they capable uh, capable of to kind of try to fill that void on and off the court? With that? Well, I, 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 I'm going to start, I'm going to answer the question, Matt, but I, I, I think, you know, we got some really strong couple seniors coming back and, and, and Shante Stonewall and Kelly Campbell. So that's, you know, it's important. It starts at the top, so it's very important that those two are coming back and those two are coming back with all the experience and all that they've done. So to get back to your, I mean, the bad news was Tanita was banged up and and the freshman had to play this year, and that was that's turned out to be great for them. I mean, Sonia started those first six games, and Sonia came off the bench and played a ton of minutes. Lexi, you know, got her mojo going after Christmas, and she had a tough injury that cost us. She didn't play four games, that, you know. And, and don't forget Seton Hall, that loss to Seton Hall, that, that that was part of her, you know, being banged up. I mean, had she played in that first game against Seton Hall, we might not lose to Seton Hall. So she had 28 against Seton Hall at Seton Hall. Now she hardly, she came, we put her in the game against Seton Hall here, but she was just recovering. She played about a minute. So at St. John's, Madison Square Garden, she had 16. Here she doesn't play. So, you know, Lexi, you know, really at her, you know, she's a four-time freshman of the week or something and probably came within a whisker of Mary Baskerville being the freshman of the year in the league. And then, and then Maya Stovall, you know, starts those the last you know, I, I've got the numbers down, so I'm six and fourteen or twenty. So basically, we had we played what with twenty six and eight. We played thirty four games, so fourteen last games. You know, Maya Stovall started, and I think we might have won them all actually, except Missouri State. So you know, and and so she got a, a ton of experience here, and I think it's going to be really really important for those freshmen to be sophomores very very quickly. You know, we still have Deba Kelja here. Coming back, we just did sign a really important transfer in Kiara Dahlman, who plays very much like Marte Gray. She's a junior college transfer, and Deja Church. So we have a, 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 a as a Michigan transfer. And I, I reference the transfers in recruiting first because of their experience. So it's not like you know. Let's start from the top again. You got Shante Stonewall. You got Kelly Campbell. But now you got Kiara Dahlman who is going to be a junior at 6'2 that can play an interior position. She plays just like Marte, except she plays more from the inside out. You know, Marte, we love her, but she still, if she you know, you cut her head, heart, and guts open, she wanted to play from the outside in instead of the inside out, and she was at her best when she was playing from the inside out. I mean, when, so Marte, you know, we have a replacement for Marte, we feel like, in Kiara Dolman. It's going to take her some adjustment time. It's not like she's going to step on the floor and replace Marte in a, nap, in a heartbeat. But, I mean, by the 15th, 20th game of the year, that's when Juco's start to hit their stride. So I think we should have a good run with Kiara coming in here. And then, you know, Deja Church is, is scheduled to sit out, but we'll see what happens in that situation. And then, um, you know, the, the freshman... 
not as Jean as a redshirt freshman that didn't play last year. That's also part of the Lexi, Sonia, Maya group. And she's at 6'2", has some great strength where she tore her ACL in high school. So she sat last year and got a good, so a good amount of time. She was able to play finally by January, February. So there's another player here that, you know, I, I'm, I'm excited for the blend of the old with the new. Is really where I'm going with this. And let's not forget Deepa Kelja. You know, Dee has been a steady player for us, and she's our lone junior at this point. And Jolie Danninger is a lot better player than people think. So there's just, I, I'm really encouraged and excited about the group we have coming back. A lot of work to do, six new people, but still, I mean, there's a, another freshman coming in by the name of Kayla Caudle who's six, you know, is a, is a strong rebounder. Hannah Purcell's coming in from Minnesota. And Marissa Warren is a really strong point guard coming in from Incarnate Word in St. Louis, the same place that's produced Sonny Morris and Felicia Chester before her. And that's one of the better programs in the nation. And then Kiki Rimmer is a really talented player coming at us from, uh, from Proviso East. So we do have a, a lot coming in here, and I'm excited about blending the old with the new. As a head coach, I'm out of this, there's a lot of moving pieces there. How do you manage to, to fire the bright spots for all these new pieces? Like, how, how hard is that as a coach, and what can you do to kind of get everyone involved? It's what we choose to do here as coach college basketball. Once you sign up for collegiate coaching, college coaching, you're signing up to be in a place of constant flux. I mean, you hear me expounding about our freshmen, and yet we're out there trying to replace them already. They haven't even set foot on campus, and we're looking at players in the class of 23, 24, 22. I mean, you know, and these are the class of 19, so we're out there looking at players to replace them already, and they haven't even stepped foot on campus. So that's, it's just part of what you choose to do when you are a collegiate basketball coach. So with all this being said, for, for next season, what are you most looking forward to with this new group coming in? And I don't know if you guys you mentioned how the team kind of sets the goals. Do you have any goals personally? Because I'm sure those aren't set yet for next year. Well, I, I always have. I mean, I I don't think you can have ask your players to have goals without you personally having goals. I mean, I and again, I'm going to digress here a second, man. It's not going to be a short answer. But when I coached this team in the '70s, our our, our goal was to earn scholarships, achieved. All right. In the 80s, the goal was to go to the NIT. When we left here at 78, I was here two years, we left this place with a great recruiting class. I mean, it was, it was you know, I can name the names, it doesn't mean anything to you, but I mean, Deborah Robinson and Eddie Anthony, Joanne Fries, these were really, and in the 80s, the goal was to get to the NIT, and the NIT championship was won here in 1988. I was not here, I coached the women's pros for two years, I was at Lyola with the men for eight, but I, I think we helped set the stage for that. Goal in the 70s, scholarships achieved. Goal in the 80s, NIT championship achieved in 88. We come back here in 88, 89. Goal in the 90s is to make the NCAA tournament. We went to the NCAA tournament for the first time in 1990. We went in seven times in the 90s. And so it was achieved. I didn't feel like the program was complete and whole, so in 96, 97, 97, 98, we made a decision. We're going to back up the truck, and we're going to bring in 
nothing but great students that are service-oriented people that can also play basketball. Maybe a little bit lesser basketball, but we're going to make this program something that is going to be an academic achiever, and it's going to be a service achiever, and it's going to be a basketball achiever. When I made that decision in 97, for five years we did not go to the NCAA tournament. Two years we lost badly, three years we went to the NIT. I knew with the decision two things would happen. We would catapult this thing or I'd be fired. And the decision worked. All right, so the goal of 2000 was to make the program complete. Service, academics, basketball, achieved. I got one goal left. You know, I really, it, it's hard to go to the NCAA tournament. We're very proud of what we've achieved here. But you can't sit in this chair resting on what you've achieved. You have to be driving yourself, and your staff, and your team forward. All right? We're proud of having gone to 24 tournaments. And in my time coaching here, that's 33 years we've been to a postseason tournament 30 times. Guess what? Now, what's my goal? Well, we haven't, won, we haven't been to an Elite Eight yet. We haven't been to the Final Four yet. We haven't won a national championship yet. So those are my goals. When I sit here and get juiced up about my next day, that's what's in my vision and my dream and my goal is to take this program from its inception back in the 70s when we were working here for no pay and I make that statement on purpose, all right, and you guys can figure out the purpose of the statement, all right, and therefore now we got one goal left, all right, and that's to take this program to another level and that's what juices me. I mean, it, it's, 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 you can't, I'm not just doing this just to keep doing it. I mean, and the other thing, having coached 45 years, I, I mean, I, I really believe, and, and I've got beliefs. I, I, I really, I really hate anybody. I don't hate anybody. Let me say that. Let me say that. I really disdain the concept of labels, of labeling people, all right? And, you know, I, I, I gave a speech once and asked all the World War II veterans to stand up because they're a dying breed. They're called the greatest generation by Brokaw's book. And not just by the book, but the people that lived through World War II, all right, was called the greatest generation, all right? And I had them stand up. And when the speech was over, a young man who served in Korea and a young man who served in Vietnam came up to me and they said, I really, really appreciate what you just did for those World War II veterans, but the bullets we were taking in Korea and the bullets we were taking in Vietnam weren't fake. They were real too. So I stood corrected, all right? Basically, labels. I labeled the greatest generation. So I started coming to this philosophy about not liking labels. I had the honor at Fest a few years back to introduce, I think it's Wiz Khalifa, black and yellow, black and yellow. Uh -huh. Oh yeah, I got to introduce him. And after the introduction, um, I, I, I went and I have a son that's a musician that has his own band, so he's a starving artist working actually at Bernie's across the street from Wrigley. It wasn't a Cub game that night, but so he was up there by himself and I go in there and I sit down in front of him, six foot four, he's a big guy, he played college ball himself, but he's got a great band playing all over Chicago at the time. The band was called The Towns, 
And and I just say to them, you know, the best your group, your generation can do is black and yellow, black and yellow, uh-huh, oh yeah, black and yellow. And and obviously that that song's got a lot more to it than black and yellow. I mean, if you listen to the words, it's got a lot of great words in it. But at any rate, he leans over and he looks at me and says, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, he shoves the Beatles right back in my face and their sophomoric word, you know, words. So basically, I'm being taught here that the label generations is foolhardy. So I hate labeling generations. So therefore, whenever I hear adults, or no, elders, there's always going to be elders and youngers. And that's life. I didn't get to pick when I was born, and you didn't get to pick when you were born. I didn't get to pick who my parents were, you didn't get to pick who your parents were. I'm expounding about the greatest generation, and we got a Japanese American over here whose family was interned during World War II. So you know, we don't get to pick our parents, we don't get to pick where we're born and who we, but you know, okay. So now I've got 45 years of experience, all right, of coaching. And I know I'm a hell of a lot better coach today than I was yesterday because I work at it very hard every day. And I learn something new about it every single day. It's one of the things I love about this. However, okay, young people will look and say, you know, what's that old fart doing here? Get, why don't you get out and give it up to a younger person? That's labeling me as an elder. So if I don't like being labeled as an elder, why would I ever label? So I don't even know, I can't stand hearing the word millennial. I can't stand hearing the word. Because I, you know, I don't know even the exact, so I, I just think it's foolish. You young people are, are smart, you're intelligent, you're hardworking. So for anybody my age to look down my nose at people your age is stupid. Just like it is for young people to look at older people and just assume we're all over the hill and can't think. All right, so there needs to be a coming together here, but I just really believe in, I'm getting better as I'm getting older, I'm getting smarter as I'm getting older, but old people lose it when they give up on their idealism of youth. Your idealism of youth should be, your job is to maintain it into your 30s, into your 40s, into your 50s. That's your job looking for 60s, 70s. Don't ever lose your idealism of youth. I mean, I was with a, a young person yesterday. feels like yesterday I was 22 years old. And I was a senior at DePaul University and graduating. And, and it just, you're going to be my age one day. And you're going to say, I can't believe it went that fast. But it goes very quickly. So again, these are just some beliefs I have about why age isn't, I still got juice in me. It's all about how do you figure out how to put this, this is what juices me. And I don't want to lose the idealism of youth. And, you know, that's just a recommendation of an elder helping talk to a younger, but it's our job to look up to you young people, not look down at you. you know, I was young once too, and our parents just said, you listen to that cruddy music, all right, you, you know, they made fun of us too. So it's, it's, elders tend to do that. It's my job not to do it, so. Let's imagine that today is September 1st, 2018. We're a month before. 2018? 2018, we're a month before the open to the fans practices at Winchester Arena, the men's and women's scrimmages. What advice do you have for Doug Bruno on September 1st, 2018? I, I, really, I really feel like I didn't 
do a good enough job, let myself critique of last season, and I always do that first. I mean, game's over, we lose. I look in the mirror, me first. No, no. I, I would, I would have totally had a better understanding. I believe because of the experience we had coming back, the four seniors and the two juniors, that an experience in college basketball is really an, a, a valuable asset. So I believed with that experience, we had a chance to be really strong this year. I did not make my players as accountable. We talked about the goals when we started talking here. Those goals have to be accompanied by a commitment to achieve those goals. And I would, I, I would question my own making my players accountable to the commit. Basically, I didn't work our older players hard enough. I, I, I gave them a little bit of slack for their experience instead of maybe treating them a little bit more like holding their feet to the fire. Okay, you want to say you want to achieve this? You to go places you've never been. You got to do things you've never done. And I would have, I would have held them more accountable than I did. That's, and I've told them that. I've told them if I could have this year back, that's what I didn't do right. Is, is you guys set these great goals, and it's my job to make you accountable to the commitment to achieve those goals, and I don't know that I made them accountable early enough. And I think the accountability, that's probably when you ask the question about what adjustments were made at, during the season, and I, and I commented on how I'm really proud of the way they picked themselves up because, I mean, really, coming out of Super Bowl Sunday, this thing could have gone either way. I mean, we could have, we could have been. A, they could have made history by being the first team not to make the tournament. <laughs> and, and, and you know, our backs were really against the wall at that point, and they had the pressure on them to win one in a row eleven times. I never told them you have pressure to win one in a row eleven times. We just kept it at, at, at the next game point and level. But you know, I, I would have made, I would have worked to make them more accountable. Last, you know, we also had a great trip to France last summer, and you know, I thought that in and of itself would be a great team bonding and building experience, which it was, but I don't know that I made them accountable enough to the commitment necessary to achieve their stated goals. And that's what I would do differently. The Radio DePaul Sports Podcast is produced and edited by Matt Melmsetter. It's hosted by Tim Stebbins, Abasta Hidwala, and Matt Melmsetter. Special thank you to Bob Sakamoto and Doug Bruno. And another special thank you to Scott Viverman, our faculty advisor. If you like what you heard, please rate and review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps us out. Thank you.